You're listening to Left Jest. Uh, today we are very excited to be talking to Alex Nuns, who just wrote a great book called The Candidate. Check that out. And uh, Alex is not here at the moment. Alex, Alex Patak, excuse me. Another Alex, who's the co-host, is uh, had to step out. But uh, we're joined by Julian. Yes, hello. How are you doing? Good. Um, and we're also really excited to have an in-studio guest who's from the UK and um, is a musician. Um, you may have heard of him. He's kind of a big deal, uh, especially in the labor movement. Billy Bragg has joined us in the studio. Thanks so much for joining. Hey, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Uh, you, you're happy to be Yeah. Okay, he's happy to be here. Uh, very excited. And we he's brought his guitar with him. That's going to be good. He's a great musician. And uh, so what we're going to do is have him play a little song. Yes. Can you play us a song for us? Yeah, I guess I can do it. Excited. Right, here we go. They spies on the birthday, they the union factory working in the power of the for England. Hey, belly, belly. Is that how? What do you? What? That's what? What are you saying? I'm s- sorry. What? You say, what? It is. You, you can you just stop for a second. Start? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Billy, can you just pause for? Okay. Uh. I just, you know, we're uh, it's an American audience. Yeah, I can't hear. I can't understand it. You saying you don't like my song? No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Sound like you didn't like it? No, no, I didn't say. I just didn't understand. We started the song. I thought you were st- like warming up. Oh no, we started it. You, you want me to keep playing or? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah go yeah. ahead. Go ahead, Billy Brad. Go ahead, please. I don't need to. In the change pavilion with the walkers in the fall And the red rose in the factories of an evening And the same by the dreamers, let's go for selling grave And dreamy driving dreams for the union Is this like one of the more popular ones? Yeah, it's my hit classic That's, that's a classic It's my hit classic Oh yeah, okay By the union Yeah, it's Wait, not what's, uh, it, what's it called? It's a party. What's that? It's a party. What was that? It's a party. I got you. It's power in a... Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, so yeah. that's, you know... I don't know if we're going to have time for you to play the full right, song. Right, 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 right. Or, you know, we get... Right, right, right. What you, you, I can't play the full full track on my... Just spell it the word. Well, what? What? You know, uh, sorry. Yeah, we don't have time. Yeah, it's a to time thing. Whole, it's, it's a time, a time thing. thing. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us, oh, Billy Bragg. Man. Oh, he's leaving now. Time, man. Ugh. I'm really Sometimes sorry. Sometimes it gets in the way, you know. You don't want to get this guy mad, but he's, you know, he seems to be taking it well. Looks. Right. Oh, oh shit. He's he's outside. He's he has um a shovel. Okay. What's and he he's throwing it. Oh, he's smashing his smashing own guitar. Did we make him give up? I uh, I don't know if I hope we did or didn't. I'm not sure. Man, uh, Billy Bragg, give it up for him. I you know I will say I do love a lot of his songs. Some of them are pretty good. Yeah, that's what I hear. Others are a little harder to comprehend. Right, but oh, they're not for us necessarily. Not for us. It's it's a different cultural thing. But we do have someone on today who's going to be talking about differences in U.S. U.K politics as we're learning there's a lot of similarities uh stay tuned
Here we go. Thank you for tuning in to Left Just. Anders Lee here with Alex Batak. I'm not Anders. Stop asking. We are very uh, overjoyed to be joined today via f- Skype phone from someone, a guest, our first international guest. We're talking to someone across the pond from the great uh, Isle of England. Uh, his name is Alex Nunns. He's a journalist, activist, and musician. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, jo- uh, Alex. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I almost called you Jeremy. Because that's uh, who we're going to be discussing today. Uh, he just wrote a book, Alex did, called The Candidates. It came out a few months ago from OR Books. And it's about the rise of uh, labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, um, who uh, is a very interesting guy. Um, but I want to start, before we get to him, uh, to kind of, if you could, just set the stage for us for 2015. There is a, a general election in the U.K., and uh, if you could kind of... Uh, go through what unfolded there with uh, with the um, re-election of Prime Minister David Cameron. Sure. Well, we had a, a coalition government before 2015 in the UK, a coalition of the Conservatives and the Liberals, which was really unusual for our electoral system. Um, and then when the 2015 election came around, everybody expected Labour to win, or at least to do well enough to be able to form a government, perhaps in coalition with the Liberals. Um, but as it got close to the election, the Conservatives kind of caught up a bit. And then on the election day itself, um, the result was a complete shock because the Conservatives got a overall majority, which meant they could form a government without having to be in coalition with anybody. And uh, Labour fell back in seats. And that was largely because in Scotland, a kind of earthquake happened and the uh, Scottish National Party, who want to be separate from the rest of the UK, um, took all but two seats in Scotland. Um, which really hammered Labour. I think Labour lost 41 seats or something. Um, And so Labour came out of that in kind of shock and despondency. And there was lots of blame games. And, you know, was it the fault of the the leader at the time, Ed Miliband, who was um, accused of being too far to the left by the kind of followers of Tony Blair, even though Ed Miliband was a bit ambiguous in his politics. Um, And so um, this kind of Basically, this big battle started up in the in the Labour Party itself. But at the beginning, the left wasn't a part of that battle. It was a it was a battle between Blairites, effectively, and people in the kind of um, boring middle of the Labour Party, if you like. And the left was excluded. So no, nobody predicted after the general election that um, somebody like Jeremy Corbyn from the left, who's equivalent to you know Bernie Sanders, nobody predicted that somebody like him could become the leader. Everybody just thought it was going to go back to to Tony Blair style politics. Right. And I mean, something that um, was really interesting to me was to to look at this guy, Ed Miliband, who's kind of uh, not to be mean to he's kind of a husk of a person. He really has no <laughs> he, he he went to I mean, you write about this. He went to this like anti austerity rally and it was just like a very it was like a scene out of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if you have that over there, but he's just like saying things that he does not. He did, you could tell he didn't really believe him. And then the next day he's like coming out and he's like, well, we go to cut some stuff. Um, so th- like that's something we have a lot over here that I think a lot of progressives and leftists in America can relate to kind of this uh, this rhetorically progressive, sometimes wing of of the establishment, a yeah. liberal party, but or left party that doesn't actually uh, follow through or just is kind of trying to have it uh, both ways all the time. Yeah. 
I think in the UK, a lot of a lot of our politicians go to the states. A lot of, especially Labour politicians, go to the states to learn their politics with the Democrats uh-huh. when they've just left university. And I think most of the, those people think they're in the West Wing. You know, they they really imagine that they're doing. You know, trying to carve policy out like like they're in the West Wing and that they're all that kind of wonkish stuff of you know you do a bit of this and you do a bit of that and then the the effect is that everybody loves you they really buy into that they're still doing it now and they don't seem to understand probably on both sides of the atlantic that the 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 popular um consent for that kind of politics is just evaporated alex have you seen hbo's the special relationship i haven't there's a wonderful example of exactly what you're talking about where tony blair's coming to the office in the mid 90s and he gets to meet his hero bill clinton and the entire yeah. movie is them falling in love at first sight. <laughs> it literally, yeah, it's just about a bromance. There's no like. This. There's not a story exactly. It's just love has no shape. Incredibly bad movie. Um, I'll check it out. But I did want to ask too about. Uh, so after you know, Miliband sinks it, uh, gets you know eked out by Cameron. Um, how does the Labor Party regroup? And more specifically, how does it? Um, restructure things in a way that kind of creates the conditions for a Jeremy Corbyn to uh, win in the in the leadership election. Sure. Well, there were some short-term things and some long-term things. The short-term things first, after the election, um, the Blairites did, did really thought that they were going to reclaim their party, and they started um, this kind of coordinated onslaught where they were all using the same word even they had a word aspiration they said labor had lost because it hadn't appealed to aspirational voters and they all said this it was really funny because they they would all pop up on the news you know in the couple of three days or the week after the election and they'd all just say the same thing like robots and um what they meant by aspirational voters was middle class voters they were saying labor had to be more kind of um appeal well in the uk we have a a supermarket called uh, waitrose which is like an, a, an, a top-end supermarket, if you like. It's kind of more expensive. Waitrose? Than the others, even though basically, yeah, basically sells all the same food as the others, but it, it costs more. And so people who are... People oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. like to go there. And it's soup. We're not talking filet mignon. We're not talking salmon. It's soup. It's very fancy yeah. soup. Okay. <laughs> it's whole foods and, uh, for soup. And, and the, the Blairite's theory was that they had to appeal... Like, one of them actually said this, that they had to appeal to people who aspire to shop in Waitrose. And uh, this was just like risible you know people just thought this was appalling and it was so kind of um obvious and so transparent to lots of members of the labor party that there was a big reaction against it and there was a desire for something to come along which was just more traditional labor you know more on the kind of bernie sanders and less on the kind of hillary clinton end uh-huh. um and the reason that that worked at this particular time though was because of some long-term structural changes. One of the big ones was that Labour changed the way it elects its leader. So instead of having, in the past, you had a system uh, where um, the MPs in Parliament had a third of the decision, a third of the votes went to MPs. And so they could block anybody. If they didn't want somebody to become leader, they just, you know, if none of them voted for them, that person would have no chance effectively. Kind of a little bit like superdelegates, I suppose. Right. And, um, uh, And in 2014, they got rid of that for completely... Um, unrelated reasons, mainly because the partly because the Blairites uh, wanted rid of it, ironically. Um, but also there were longer-term changes in the trade union movement in the UK, where the trade unions suddenly shifted to the left, and that's a big factor in the Labour, Labour Party. Was formed by trade unions originally, and they still have a lot of power inside uh, the Labour Party. So them shifting to the left really created the the kind of material conditions, if you like, uh, within the Labour Party for 
somebody to challenge for the leadership. It's never happened before in the Labour Party. There's never been a left-wing leader of Labour. Can I ask, and maybe you, you're not sure, but uh, sure. Are, are, are the unions in the UK in as bad a state as the unions in America, or are they somewhat around still? Because we pretty much just don't have any. <laughs> um, they're... They're, they're stronger in the public sector than they are in the private sector. They're kind of, they've been, in 1979, when Thatcher came to power, there were 13 million workers who were members of the union. And I think now there are about seven, I think, seven million. So it's really retreated from its height in the 20th century. Um, but they've still got some power, you know, they've still got, they've still got millions of members and they're still um, very powerful in specific industries. Um, and they're very powerful within the Labour Party. So... They're not completely gone, but yeah, they are weak. Uh, so Jeremy Corbyn is he's someone who had been around for decades, right, before uh, running for leader. And um, yeah. he was kind of reluctant for because, uh, you know, he was talking about the need for an anti-austerity uh, candidate for labor leader. Um, yeah. but, but can you talk a little bit about the process for him deciding to run? Uh, was he pushed by other people, or did he kind of take this on himself? Um, and uh, what was his career like before this uh, this election? Um, well, he, as you say, had been an MP for 32 years, and basically nobody had taken any notice of him for 32 years. He'd been uh, on the left, completely marginalised, because he basically came into Parliament when the left was quite strong, but was already in decline. And for the whole of his parliamentary career after that, he was, you know, a fringe person. Um, he was very strong on, he kind of carved out a little role for himself um, on foreign policy. He would generally be um, against, you know, the Iraq war and against um, any kind of imperial adventures, standing up for the Kurds, for example, standing up for kind of marginalised groups, Palestinians. Um, but that was, that was his specific thing. That was his, like, remit. Um, but he wasn't considered to be a potential leader. He wasn't considered to be even the leader of the left. There's another guy, John McDonnell, who was considered the leader of the left. And when it came to the uh, the leadership contest after Ed Miliband resigned after the general election, it was only really because nobody else would do it that he ended up as the candidate. I mean, there was actually literally a meeting where all of the the left MPs in Parliament were in a room and like each one said, well, I'm not going to do it. Um, it's not my go and then eventually John McDonnell turned to Jeremy Corbyn and said it's your turn and that was it and he said well okay if you want me to do it I'll do it and he had no sense that um, there was any possibility that he would win the whole idea was just that he was going to get into the contest raise some ideas hopefully you know build some contacts get some get a movement going and so on that could be used as a force in the future the idea that he could win would have, you know was completely alien to everybody nobody nobody considered it um, so it was a, kind of a token candidate, and really, if, I, I presume if the left had thought that they had a chance of winning, they probably would have put someone else up. But as it happened, um, for the specific circumstances of 2015, Jeremy Corbyn ended up to be the perfect candidate. And his campaign at first not taken uh, that seriously. When does it start to sort of uh, gain traction? You know, I, I know a lot of that came from social media, where people were like, "What, what moment were people just like, this could actually happen?" It was really late. It was um, it was kind of halfway through the race because in the first half of the race there were no opinion polls, but below the um, below the surface this thing was building because you had, as you say, you had lots of people on social media. To, to start with, the first big obstacle was that Jeremy Corbyn had to get onto the ballot, and to get onto the ballot, 
he needed to have endorsements from 35 MPs. And um, that was kind of thought to be impossible because there weren't 35 left-wing MPs in Parliament. Um, and he got through that through a combination of kind of um, old-fashioned networking, but mainly social networks. Loads of people suddenly came out of the woodwork from nowhere, suddenly uh, tweeting and Facebooking their MPs and saying, please, you know, nominate Jeremy Corbyn, we need to have a debate. And those MPs thought that they could get away with that because there wasn't any danger of him winning. So it was kind of a cost-free thing to do. Wow. So, so these um, aspirational voters come out of the woodwork to support Jeremy in his time of need? Well, yeah. These weren't the aspirational people. They, these were the uh, a lot of you know workers and young people, right? People a lot with of no students. aspirations. Yeah, yeah. People with no aspirations actually. Yeah, these completely unambitious people. What a funny <laughs> word for. <laughs> uh, while this is going on too, you have media outlets um, like the Guardian, which you know I think of as an American as being very progressive compared to yeah. the media we have here. They start. Uh, they're kind of they like him at the beginning, um, right? And then slowly, or maybe not so slowly, the, the, mo the more realistic his his odds become. They really turn against him in a pretty dramatic way, right? Yeah, I mean, you probably got an idealistic idea of what the Guardian is. I mean, <laughs> the Guardian, the Guardian, for example, was very against Bernie Sanders. It was very pro Hillary Clinton. Its editorial line is basically Clintonite. Uh -huh. It's effectively a liberal paper now, like in, in the UK, liberal as opposed to socialist. It's effectively a, right. a kind of centrist paper in the UK. Is it any more left um, than, say, the New York Times? It's probably about the same. That's kind of what I figured. Yeah. Um, and they, yeah, initially they could be kind of positive about Jeremy Corbyn because they didn't think he had a chance. And so um, it was just kind of interesting, you know, that he was standing. Um, and then... Gradually, um, they, as well, as soon as it, from the moment of the first proper opinion poll, uh, kind of month and a half into the contest, when it emerged that Jeremy Corbyn was actually in the lead, you know, completely, it was a complete shock to everybody because all this had, all this had happened just totally under the radar. But from that moment onwards, the Guardian just unleashed everything it could at Jeremy Corbyn. He just had opinion piece after opinion piece after opinion piece attacking him every single day, space given to Tony Blair to attack him, space given to all the old New Labour kind of politicians. Um, and it was really, because it, cause so many of its readers were kind of Labour voters, but, you know, like the New York Times, it was kind of the central um, media outlet for the, for the Labour Party, but, you know, kind of loose sense. Um, it kind of took it upon itself to become the voice of the old Labour establishment against this new challenger and to really go for it. And some of the things they did it were just... You know, they really annoyed their own readers because they actually did a survey of their UK readership um, in the middle of all this. And they found out that most of them, by a vast majority, were in favour of Jeremy Corbyn. Lots of them had an actual vote in the, in the leadership contest. And Corbyn was kind of miles ahead of anybody else in terms of percentages that, that their readers were going to vote for. So they had a big problem that they were getting real loads of anger from their readers. But um, their kind of political, ideological position turned out to be... Uh, more important to them than, the, than the, the views of their readers, and they just carried on to the end. And they're still doing it. They haven't stopped attacking Corbyn ever since. Right. And then you have uh, Tony Blair intervening, too, mm. and uh, he cited a lot of evidence, or what he called evidence, that um, the Labour lost 
the election because they were too far left. Um, but as you point out in the book, he does, like he's not really uh, citing anything real. He's just kind of like making stuff up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, a Tony Blair has this tendency. <laughs> <laughs> we learned this in two thousand and three um, when he said there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Is Tony um, is Tony Blair as unpopular as? I, I thought he was totally disgraced in England after the Iraq he War. Uh, he's completely. I mean, he's the most unpopular politician by by a wide, by quite a distance um, in the UK. You know, opinion polls find regularly that he's really unpopular with every single demographic and every single group in society, except for uh, the media. The media still uh, think he's great. Right. And um, so he still gets space to say what he wants to say, and he still gets. You know, most of the. You know, not most, but a lot of the commentators are still essentially Blairites um, and he's still treated as if he's somebody who deserves to be listened to by the media but by nobody else really everybody else actually despises him he's considered to be a, a liar and a war criminal by most people um, he popped up in the leadership contest and um, said uh, yeah he said Labour lost the election because it was too left wing and, he, he, and it didn't appeal to aspirational voters and all this stuff again and again and again um, and all the polling there's quite, you know, there's really detailed research done on election results. So everything he said could basically be contrasted with the evidence and uh, shown that it wasn't, didn't quite stand up. But anyway, I mean, the, the thing was, Tony Blair intervening in the leadership contest was the biggest boost to Jeremy Corbyn possible. Because <laughs> everybody uh, in the Labour Party was, you know, sick of him. And he did this thing where there was a, a morning um, where Jeremy Corbyn was launching his economic policy kind of anti-austerity economic program. And on the same morning, Jeremy, um, Tony Blair gave a speech in which he attacked Jeremy Corbyn saying that even if the left was the best way of winning an election, even if the, the obvious way to win an election was to be left wing, he still wouldn't uh, take that path um, because he didn't believe in it. And it you know, basically did all this thing. And that when uh, Corbyn was launching his economic policies in a different venue in London at the same time, he was actually worried that the media weren't going to show up, you know, that nobody was going to be there uh, to listen to him. And when he walked out of the venue afterwards, he found the whole world's press was on the pavement um, with, you know, all the cameras and so on, asking for his reaction to what Tony Blair had said about him. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn's ally, John McDonnell, said that at that point he felt like buying Tony Blair a bunch of red roses, done such a, such a huge favour. Because, you know, Tony Blair, as I say, the media hangs on Tony Blair's every word still. So if Tony Blair's attacking someone, the media suddenly are interested in that person and, and the general public are interested in that person. You know, who's this guy that Tony Blair hates? I should like this guy because Tony <laughs> Blair hates um, And it, it was a massive boost for, for Corbyn because, honestly, there's nobody as unpopular in a Labour Party as Tony Blair, really, and uh, um, lots of people would have voted for Corbyn just to annoy him, I think. And he would. He's there is some speculation that Blair's going to be in a little trouble should Corbyn somehow manage to, to get into 10... Downing Street, because uh, you know, war crimes, as you mentioned earlier, is there a realistic chance that a hypothetically under a Corbyn government, Blair would be prosecuted? I don't know. I mean, it seems unlikely because, well, first of all, it seems unlikely because in the Labour Party, there still are people who, you know, in the power structures of the Labour Party, there's still people who would defend Tony Blair. Um, unfortunately, I mean, lo lo there are a lot of people who want Blair to be prosecuted, but it seems that there are kind of legal obstacles and so on. Nobody seems to think it's that likely. We had a big inquiry into the war recently, the Chilcot inquiry uh -huh. in the UK, uh, which concluded um, it was quite damning for him, for Blair. Well, um, in, this, but, 
in this fictional situation, couldn't you just get all those people together on a boat and maybe just send them off? That would be great, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know the legality of it, but, you know, why not? I guess that's possible in any situation. Um, yeah. So the, we're you know nearing the the uh, elect the prime minister or the uh, late leader election in 2015. You have uh, their establishment. The Blairites are pulling out all the stops. Um, they uh, there are a lot of accusations thrown about about this thing called uh, entryism. Uh, mm. Could you talk a little bit about that? How they they would kind of purge people from the labor labor party with this uh, accusation that they were just um, trying to sabotage Labour's goals? Yeah, this was partly because they had um, created a rod for their own back. The the, uh, the Blairites actually introduced a new system, a voting system, where anybody could vote for £3. So you didn't actually have to be a member of the Labour Party. You just had to pay £3 and you could vote for the leader. And um, because of that, they, they, they expected, the Blairites expected, that because the general population is not left-wing, um, if they did this, you know, most people who are going to vote are going to be, you know, centrist kind of people who are going to vote for the Blairite candidate. It was like the most ironic and biggest miscalculation <laughs> that they could possibly have made, because obviously the people who took up the three pound vote were left wing people, not necessarily um, kind of Trotskyist types or entryist types, but um, just campaigners, anti-war campaigners or um, anti-austerity campaigners and people in, in the uh, climate change uh, movement and so on. Those are the people, because they're interested in politics, those are the people who suddenly found that they could pay three pounds and get involved in this process. But this created this ridiculous panic from the old Labour establishment um, where they accused everybody basically of being a a Trotskyist communist, um, trying to, we have this concept of entryism where people join a party to change its direction. It comes from the 1980s when it did actually happen. But this was nothing to do with what was happening in 2015 because, you know, most of the people who were paying £3 to vote for Jeremy Corbyn in 2015 weren't even born in the 1980s when this kind of paranoia first took hold. Um, and so what the Labour Party did in response is it initiated a purge. And it was a kind of, it was a really rubbish purge. It was the worst of all worlds because it didn't actually get rid of enough people to make any difference to the results. So they didn't help themselves. But what they created was this atmosphere of bitterness and injustice and anger and again it was the same as the uh, the, the intervention from Tony Blair it, all of this stuff helped Corbyn because there was the sense that Jeremy Corbyn was the guy fighting against the odds that they were throwing everything they could at him it was like a movie script they're throwing everything they can at him but he's still going to get there you know um, and so so that's how that played out it really, that, again it, it created a lot of fury and it, it ended up working in uh, Corbyn's favour and then he wins right um, yeah. That's where you open the book. Is this this kind of surreal, almost victory party that no one saw coming just a few months prior? Um, what was the reaction like? I mean, for a, a few weeks they had kind of expected that this would be the outcome, uh, but what was the reaction like? You know, you were on the ground in England for for people uh, just to have this a socialist, an out and out Marxist socialist, be elected to a, a major party leadership. It was unbelievable. I mean, it just—it was so unexpected, but just implausible. You just couldn't believe it was happening because it—you know—it come from nowhere. I mean, if if there'd been a long time of the left building its strength, and the left being in the media a lot, and the the left having big organisations and the unions being strong and going on strike a lot, then it, that would be one thing. But this was just out of nowhere. Like literally in May 2015. 
uh, one of the leading figures on the left said it was the darkest hour for socialists in Britain since 1951. Huh. And then three and a half months later, the left is suddenly leading the Labour Party, which it's never done before. And so it was kind of like, I mean, everybody was in shock. The, the media couldn't understand it and just reacted by attacking him. Uh, the Labour right, the, the Blairite type MPs couldn't understand it or believe it. Um, and the Corbyn supporters were just kind of um, overjoyed as if they'd won the World Cup or something. And there was a funny scene, actually, on the uh, straight after he'd won, Corbyn went to a, a pub where his uh, supporters had gathered and they were just all crammed into the building. It was, like, really crushed. And the barman thought that he was going to have his licence taken away because of too many people and all this kind of thing. And Corbyn gave a speech. And then there was actually an American family, a tourist, uh, family of tourists who got sort of squashed into the corner of this room because uh, they'd just gone in there for their lunch and they just stayed in there and then suddenly this massive party is kind of happening around them and uh, Corbyn apologised to them on the microphone he was giving a speech and he kind of said oh um, we apologise to this American family here we respect our good friends in the USA and then all of his supporters started chanting USA USA which is <laughs> like really odd for a left-wing socialist anti-imperialist <laughs> um, just been elected leader of the Labour Party so yeah there was just there was quite a quite a long time of the, a kind of um, sense of disbelief um, but it soon came down to us because then obviously you know there was this huge torrent of uh, abuse and uh, and um, criticism that just immediately landed on Corbyn's head so you know the, the joy didn't last too long but uh, for a while it was surreal. Well, you mentioned he's anti-imperialist, which uh, is also a very um, out-of-the-box thing for a, a, a labor leader. Um, can you talk a little bit about his, you know you mentioned his his foreign policy has been a focus of his over Corbyn's career. How does he want to engage the world differently from what we've seen in the past? Well, this is where um, this has been the most controversial, actually, aspect of his leadership uh -huh. because on. It's really interesting the way you see ideologies play out because on lots of domestic policies, the the kind of right wing of the Labour Party, the Blairites and the other part of the right of the Labour Party, they don't necessarily like what Corbyn wants to do, but they can put up with it. But when it comes to foreign policy, the kind of Atlanticist strain, the kind of pro-US foreign policy strain, um, pro-Israel strain in the Labour Party is just really um, viscerally... Um, vigilant against anything that Corbyn does which can be which you know diverts from their line even when there's nothing electorally at stake um so for example with um recently uh, there was an attempt by Corbyn to have a vote on the war in Yemen where the Saudis with British and American support are bombing Yemen and causing a, a huge famine and lots of people are going to die and you know, there's the human rights organisations have produced lots of reports showing that the Saudis are using British weapons to kill civilians, and this is, you know, Britain should legally stop selling them weapons. And that was all the vote was about that Britain should uh, pause selling weapons to the Saudis while they while they appear to be using them to commit crimes. And even that was too radical for the for the kind of um, Atlanticist part of the Labour Party and lots of them rebelled over it and refused to cooperate and that's happened all the way through there have been flashpoints there was a big flashpoint about bombing Syria in um, uh, late 2015 um, when David Cameron at the time the Prime Minister he, he brought a vote in Parliament to get permission to join in the war 
in Syria and with you know bombing Islamic State and stuff. And um, the most of it was thought that most Labour MPs would go along with this, but in, a, in actual fact, because there was a kind of a lobbying operation by Corbyn supporters, in the end, most voted against. But it was still a huge controversy, and you had this absurd spectacle where Corbyn's foreign policy spokesman, Hillary Benn, um, spoke against his own leader, you know, in the, in the House, from the same bench, you know. So you had the, the two, two of the top people in the same party arguing completely opposite positions, which obviously is, uh, um, doesn't look very good. <laughs> it doesn't look like the party um, really agrees with itself. And that's just because they're so attached to this foreign policy ideology, which is, and they consider that Corbyn's ideology is, you know, anathema to everything they believe in. Right. Well, while we're on the subject of his ideology, he also kind of diverges from um, a lot of the old socialist left in the UK. Right. He's not as doesn't emphasize nationalization so much as uh, as direct democracy, direct control over things like the railway system. Um, Mm. Could you talk a little bit about his his wanting to kind of decentralize the economy in some respects? Yeah, this is something which, unfortunately, it's, it's come across really strongly in his leadership campaigns, but it hasn't come across strongly when he's been leader, because obviously there are probably too many blockages to him getting his stuff through. But he's quite a, his thinking is quite kind of modern on this stuff. So he thinks, for example, if you're going to um, have a state-run railway, he thinks that it should be run not just by a bureaucracy um a state bureaucracy he thinks that there should be some a kind of cooperative system between where passengers have a role in the management and workers have a role in the management and the state has a role in the management and he's kind of libertarian socialist i guess he's a kind of you know moving towards the kind of chomskyist end of socialism whereas the labor party traditionally when it was a socialist when it um was seen as a socialist party was implementing a very kind of bureaucratic system where you know, the state takes over stuff and the state tells people, you know, what they can have and what they can't have and so on. Um, And it was all controlled by technocrats, effectively. And that model was, that model was quite successful in some ways in the UK after the Second World War until, until Margaret Thatcher came along. Um, And Corbyn is often accused of wanting to go back to that. But in actual fact, his personal political ideology is much more innovative and it's more, also more participative. He wants it's basically about democracy. He, want, he wants people to be able to have maximum control over their own lives by playing a part in the decisions um, that are taken about them. Um, and that could, you know, draws on things that are happening in Latin, Latin America with participative budgeting and all, all these kind of new ideas, and which are really quite exciting. The trouble is, it's hard to get them through a party system where the majority of your MPs won't accept anything, you know, in the slightest bit radical, let alone something innovative and new where you can't point to previous examples of it, you know, in the UK happening. If he's getting so caught up in the uh, machinations of government, has he considered maybe just making an app (laughs) or some kind of disruptive Silicon Valley type approach to maybe taking over the trains? I mean, that's an idea. I mean, there is a kind of um, an effort to get a, some kind of digital democracy thing going where when I mentioned the Syria vote, where um, where the opinion in the Labour Party shifted, and what happened was, there was the vote was called. It looked like the majority of MPs were in favour of bombing Syria, and then over a weekend, Jeremy Corbyn called for members of the Labour Party to e- email their opinions. Nothing more complicated than that. He said, "Email me your opinions," 
and then after they did when they after about two days they did a kind of survey of these emails and they found that 75 percent of them were against bombing syria and they had a huge response and that was enough to scare or persuade enough labor mps to vote against the bombing and so from that moment there's been this, this idea that um there needs to be some kind of digital way of involving party members in decisions and getting some kind of um demo- online democracy going it hasn't really um come to fruition yet but i think it's still been developed but yeah so there are those ideas and i, I think you're right i think you could easily do innovative solutions which would um as long as they're you know it's difficult for, for people to argue against empowering people um with new technology so i think it's that's a really good way of doing it and they should be doing more of that hmm. i was mostly joking but it is super weird huh? that the oldest politicians are the one pu- pushing across like techno whiz kid uh, approaches to government <laughs> very strange <laughs> well his and that goes back to his uh sort of philosophy which is another uh sort of um different tack from what uh, the labor party has tried to do in the past which is you know this idea of parliamentary socialism am i getting that right where it's it's very much yeah, yeah this reverence for the parliamentary system it's it's sort of a top-down approach and um he's actually encouraging people to do something that they haven't been encouraged to do before, which is just uh, tell their representatives what they want them to do. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different philosophy. Corbyn thinks that social change happens, um, you know, in daily life, in society, and then that feeds through to Parliament, and what happens in Parliament is really the, the last stage, whereas what um, lots of MPs seem to think is that, you know, they're some kind of, they're wise gurus or something, or they're kind of, um, especially gifted people who sit in Parliament and talk to each other and deliberate and then come up with these magnificent um, policy ideas which are then um, you know cascaded down the the chain of command and then everybody um, follows the orders and lives happily ever after and so it's kind of as you say that's a top-down vision and Corbyn's is a kind of bottom-up vision I think Corbyn Corbyn's kind of found lots of obstacles to that bottom-up vision when he's actually tried to, you know, now that he's in a position of leadership, it's, I think it's probably much harder for him to do than he probably expected. Um, but yeah, it is interesting that, um, that it's taking kind of, I mean, Corbyn's 67, I think, or maybe 68 now. Um, so you wouldn't expect these kind of new, new ideas to be coming from somebody of that generation, perhaps, but, it, um, but, it, but they are. I mean, they're, not com- they're definitely not coming from the younger generation of Labour MPs who are um, mostly hopeless. Uh-huh. He looks good for 68. That's because he's got the beard, yeah. I think. <laughs> um, moving forward a little bit, uh, Brexit, obviously a pretty big um, earthquake yeah. in the uh, the UK political world. Um, but, but leading up to that, the Parliamentary Labour Party had really been looking for any excuse, right, to get this guy out. Uh, so yeah. that did that kind of seem like a very opportune time for them to uh, to oust him? Yeah, as soon as Corbyn was leader, there there are lots of people in the Labour Party who just will not accept that the left could possibly lead the Labour Party. They just won't. They just completely won't accept it. Um, and so from the first moment of his leadership, there were kind of there was talk of an instant coup. There was talk of a coup by Christmas. This was like in September. There was talk of. Um, uh, undermining him in various different ways and refusing to follow his orders in Parliament. And then there were actual attempts at, well, there were, there were obviously some moments where they thought there was going to be a kind of excuse to have 
uh, a coup and get rid of him. There was a, an important local election at one point, just a few months after he became leader, but Labour won that really with an increased majority. It was kind of an amazing result. So they couldn't do it then. Then there were more local elections in uh, May 2016, which were expected to be really bad for Labour, but they didn't do so badly. And so they couldn't do a coup then either. But then the Brexit, the Brexit vote happened and it was kind of like a, an earthquake, a, a real shock and everybody was didn't know what to do. And at that point, they, the Labour MPs launched this um, just coordinated attempt to get rid of him. Um, they had a, basically the shadow, half the shadow or more than half the shadow cabinet, the, the group around Corbyn, resigned one an hour, every hour, over two days, all of them going on TV to resign. You know, every hour, somebody a new one would be on TV saying that they had they were resigning because they didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be leader. And for um, the Americans who might not, the shadow cabinet is basically like you stack up who would be taking over a secretary position if your party yeah. wins power, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Everybody, they're just mirror. They're exactly a mirror of the government. So you know, if the government has somebody for a minister for cheese, then the opposition has to have a minister, an opposition minister for cheese. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And. They lots of those were resigning in the on the day I think two days after the referendum the Brexit referendum, um, and then they had a vote and 172 of Labour's 230 MPs um, voted no confidence in Corbyn and they all expected him to just resign because a normal politician would resign. Um, he had no support and you know the press was going wild at this point because I think Brexit was too big for them to deal with so here was something that they could deal with they could just take Corbyn instead. Um, and so the, um, it, Labour became the story. And this was at a time when the, con- the ruling Conservative Party was in a lot of trouble because David Cameron, the Prime Minister, resigned straight away after the referendum. And they were all attacking each other, the Conservatives. And it was a big opportunity for Labour. But because they instead decided to attack Jeremy Corbyn, um, and their, yeah, Labour looked like a, a shambles. And their reason for attacking him and trying to get him to step down was not because he was for Brexit, right? It was because he wasn't, I guess, enthusiastic enough about wanting to remain in the EU. Yeah, their pretext was that he hadn't tried hard enough in the referendum to keep uh, Britain in the EU. And it wasn't really plausible because the opinion polls which came out immediately showed that 66% or about two thirds of Labour voters um, voted to remain in the EU and the other third voted to leave. And that was exactly the same as the Scottish National Party, for example. But the Scottish National Party were given credit for being, you know, strongly remain. Um, and it's actually the Conservative Party that, um, that lost the referendum because I think fewer than half of their voters followed their own leader um, to vote to remain. So it, it, it wasn't really likely that it was Corbyn's fault um, that Britain had left the European Union. Um, you know, the result wasn't that close. It was 1.3 or 1.4 million difference, I think, between the two numbers. Um, so, so yeah, but that was a pretext anyway. I mean, it, because for a lot of the that tradition in the Labour Party, the one, it comes with what I mentioned about them being pro-US, pro-Israel. They're also pro-EU and um, really kind of think of the EU as, you know, it's like socialism for them. It's really something that they aspire to be a part of, and suddenly they've been ripped out of it by this referendum, so they kind of angrily blame Jeremy Corbyn. So Corbyn becomes like the kid whose parents get divorced, and it's not directly his fault, but you're looking around and you're (laughs) like, well, I don't see anybody else here, and you have a lot of needs. I think, yes, that's about it, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 
a, a position that a lot of people kind of of Corbin's ilk, and I kind of say I am pretty sympathetic to this position as a as an armchair European, never been to <laughs> Europe, but uh, the EU. I've heard you call yourself that. That's yeah, very interesting. Well, it ain't great. The EU is not a, is not a great institution. There are obviously a lot of problems that Corbin had with it, so naturally. Um, there's at least the suspicion that in his heart of hearts, maybe he was pro leave. Is that fair? Yeah. No, yeah, because um, well, there was a big, uh, there was a ridiculous episode where people started accusing him of actually voting to leave, and you know, not just random people, journalists were printing stories saying Corbyn voted leave. You know, how the hell do you know? But <laughs> um, so this went on for a while, and it, you know, it all just got hysterical. But Corbyn's. Um, part of the Labour Party, um, which goes back to Tony Benn, who was a kind of um, big figure of the Labour Party in the 1970s, 1980s, has always been hostile to the um, lack of democracy in the European Union. And so in the referendum campaign, he wasn't going on TV and saying, we have to stay in the European Union because Europe's wonderful and everything about it's great. He was actually, in fact, at one point, somebody said to him, you know, how much do you like the European Union or how much, whatever, how much do you want to stay in the European Union? And he said seven out of 10. And this is still, this is still used against him. People still say, well, he was only seven out of 10 for staying in the EU. But it's kind of, I mean, you do have to think like, who the hell is more than seven out of 10? I mean, <laughs> the, the European Union is, um, it doesn't have uh, internal democracy. Decisions are made by um, unelectable, unelected bureaucrats. It does, it's economically stagnant. It's got a, we don't have it in the UK, but the euro as a currency is some kind of cruel punishment mechanism for countries like Greece and Spain um, who suffered terribly during the, in the aftermath of the financial crash, whereas it benefits Germany hugely. You know, Europe is definitely not perfect, but I think in the referendum, the, the problem was the option of leaving, um, first of all, has huge problems, but second of all, the referendum became very much a referendum on immigration. And so it started to look like if you were voting to leave, you know, you're, you're voting alongside people who basically just don't like foreigners. Um, right. And with a, at a time when there's a conservative government, which is, you know, if you're going to if you're going to try and leave the EU on a left wing basis because it's not democratic enough and you can't um, you can't have left wing economic policies in Europe because the, the treaties prohibit them. Um, if you're going to make that case, then you have to do that when the left is in government. But obviously, leaving the European Union when the right is in government means that what we're going to have is a kind of uh, tax haven style economy. You know, they're going to cut social protections and cut welfare and cut social security um, in an effort to become, you know, a capitalist, a competitive capitalist state. And so in, in these circumstances, it, it's, um, it, it doesn't look very hopeful. And I think Corbyn was convinced. I mean, you know, there's obviously this speculation. Nobody knows what he thought when he wasn't talking, but certainly from everything that he actually said, uh, he seemed to have been convinced that it, it would have been a bad idea to leave the EU at this point in time. And so uh, they try to get him out after that. Uh, every, he doesn't work. Uh, he still has a huge support from uh, the rank-and-file membership of the Labour Party. And then they get come up with this guy, Owen Smith. Can you talk a little bit about him and his campaign to, uh, I mean, they try to recall Corbyn in, in September, this past September 2016. Yeah, they... they because Corbyn wouldn't resign, when they all, when all these MPs resigned um, from the shadow cabinet and uh, had a vote of no confidence in him, 
they all just expected that he would resign. But he was he's really stubborn, Corbyn. But also he believes that he's, he has a duty to represent the people who voted for him. So he wasn't going to resign. Um, and that meant that the people who were challenging him had to actually put a candidate up against him to formally um, have a, an election contest. Um, and first of all, they put up a woman called Angela Eagle. But she didn't last very long because um, she was in favour of the Iraq war and she did some interviews on TV and she, she didn't really say anything at all. Um, and so they realised that she wasn't going to work. And so they got this guy, Owen Smith, who's kind of like, um, I thought he was going to be reasonably effective to begin with, but he had the, a, an amazing capacity to underperform everybody's expectations. He, um, he was like a blank canvas, basically. He doesn't seem to have any real beliefs, except he appears to be violently pro-EU. Um, but he was considered to be kind of slightly on the left, soft left. He basically just um, stole Jeremy Corbyn's policy program, but just said, look, I'm not Jeremy Corbyn, but I'm going to do the same stuff. But nobody believed him because he just said whatever was convenient at the time to say. Um, and so this election campaign went on for three months, I think. And it was, you know, there were live debates on TV between Corbyn and uh, Owen Smith. And Corbyn was remaining very kind of dignified and... Um, uh, not personal at all, just kind of talking about policies and so on. But Owen Smith was, it just got increasingly desperate and he was attacking uh, the, the left of the party, saying that it was a, a parasite, um, saying, you know, just basically throwing anything he could at Corbyn, just on a, a kind of scorched earth strategy. Uh-huh. And he was obvious he wasn't going to win and he ended up losing by, you know, Corbyn the second time won a bigger percentage of the vote than the first time because the members were so outraged that this whole thing had happened. Um, that they returned, that more of them voted for him than before. Um, and so this guy, Owen Smith, now has kind of retreated into obscurity and probably never be heard of again. Um, yeah. But it did it did huge damage, though, to the Labour Party because the polls, the poll rating, you know, Labour lost like 6% or something during that time, and it's never recovered from that. So at the moment, Labour's, you know, really low in the polls because of that kind of period of extended, really horrible, bitter infighting on people's TV sets. Right. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people are remarking now if a snap election were held today or in the next year, Labor would not be victorious. Um, Corbyn is not doing too well with Owens, I will say. He's over <laughs> Owen Smith uh, ran Clive against him. Owen. And then Clive Owen Maybe. doesn't like him. And then he got this uh, Owen Jones, who was a, a journalist, right? very young, uh, up and coming journalist who uh, was. What's that? He's 22? He's oh, he's 32. Okay. He looks like he's like 12. Yeah, 22. Well, yeah, he looks 22. 22 young. Right. <laughs> but he was uh, he, he um, was a Corbyn supporter in both yeah. times. He supported him even against another Owen. Uh, but now he's starting to say that Corbyn's got to get out at some point. He's got to step aside and let some other um, person on the left take it. Uh, do you think that's a, a viable option? Does that strategy make any sense in your view? No, his strategy doesn't make any sense because his uh, proposal is that Corbyn should do a deal with the MPs who hate him, um, whereby they will nominate uh, another left winger, like a younger one, um, in exchange for Corbyn resigning. Because obviously, this, when I said that he needed 35 nominations to get on the ballot in 2015, if Corbyn resigned, the next person would need 35. And that was you know, a mountain to climb in 2015, and it only happened because people thought he wasn't going to win. So given that a left-winger who gets in the race has got, is, will be the favourite this time because the membership is left-wing still, 
um, there's effectively zero chance that the right of the Labour Party is going to allow um, a left winger to get on the ballot if they can help it. So um, Owings, uh, Owen Jones's strategy seems a bizarre one to advocate just purely on the basis that it's not not very practical. Um, but Owen's got a particular um, kind of catastrophe-laden vision of the world. He, when, um, uh, when the left was deciding whether to stand a candidate for leader in 2015, before Corbyn was in the race, um, Owen Jones thought that the left shouldn't stand because the left would be crushed. That was, that was obviously fairly wrong. When, um, when they were talking about whether Jeremy Corbyn himself should be the candidate, Owen Jones was against Corbyn being the candidate because he thought that Jeremy Corbyn couldn't communicate with Labour Party members. Now, you might say that Jeremy Corbyn's not very good at communicating with the general public because, you know, if you look at his poll ratings, but there's no doubt that he's good at communicating with Labour Party members, so that was wrong. So I think Owen always assumes that whatever's happening, the left is going to be crushed, and that's really where he's coming from for this, with his current position, which is that he thinks that in a general election, uh, the Labour Party will be... Uh, beaten by the Conservatives badly, and that um, the left will get the blame, and that then the left will be, you know, out of the picture for decades to come. That's basically where he's coming from. But it's it's a kind of defeatist strategy. It'd be much better if you if you believe in what he believes in. It'd be much better to mobilise the membership, which is on uh, on the left side, in order to change the rules of the Labour Party so that the um, the next candidate in a future leadership election doesn't have to get 35 nominations that bring the number down. That's the way to do it, because then that would empower people rather than demoralizing them like um, Owen's plan has done. Right. And so now, uh, well, something he is a little bit scared about, the left getting crushed, uh, is if they come come out swinging with an anti-Brexit message if they say, like, we got to redo this referendum. Um, and to his credit, that is something that Corbyn, is is working on trying to come up with an alternative to the EU, reaching out to socialist parties around Europe, um, trying to bring something forward. Do you see that strategy as being successful if he starts now? You know, if there's an election in in 2020 or even before that, if he's able to start um, forming a vision of a kind of a post-EU Britain and maybe a post-EU Europe. Yeah. Well, this is the thing, you see, it's all, it's all dependent on context. Right. Because at the moment, Brexit's a complete nightmare for Labour. There's no doubt about it because the, the, it's a huge problem because in, if you're a Conservative, you tend to be anti-EU. So they're fine. And also the Conservatives are picking up votes from UKIP, which was like the far right party, um, because they're basically saying the same stuff. If you're there, there's a party called the Liberal Democrats who are um, really kind of manically pro uh, the European Union, so they're picking up all those people. And then Labour has got the problem where two-thirds of its voters voted to stay in the EU, but a third voted to leave. And lots of its, lots of its, uh, where its, where its MPs come from, where they represent, are areas in the north of England that voted leave, where you could easily, you know, if you had a, a really overt pro-EU strategy, you can imagine the anti-EU forces getting their act together and backing one candidate and, and winning. So Labour's in a kind of catch-22 situation at the moment where everything's on the wrong kind of axis. Like politics at the moment in the UK is happening on like a vertical axis where you've got like um, uh, people who are for the EU on one side and against the EU on the other side. Whereas Labour succeeds and the left succeeds when it's a horizontal axis where you've got the majority of the people, you know, at the bottom um, against 
the few people who are hoarding all the wealth, you know, at the top. And that's where Labour can can gain popularity. So the question is whether that kind of dynamic is going to turn around by 2020. Because as you say, it could be. I don't think there's there's not going to be an early general election. The next general election in the UK is going to be in 2020. And um, if by that time Britain has kind of left the European Union, or at least is in the process of doing so, and it's clear um, what the terms are for that, because at the moment it's not even clear what's what's going to happen, then the debate becomes about um, what kind of country uh, we want to be. Um, do we want to be this Tory vision of, you know, um, low kind of wages and bad jobs, crap jobs and all this kind of stuff? Or do we want a, a kind of more social country where we invest in the economy but also invest in people? And um, if, that, if, the, if the terrain comes around to that, then it could be a big... Uh, you know, then it's quite possible to see politics transforming completely. The, the other kind of complicating factor in that is that there are lots of people, Tony Blair, for example, this guy Owen Smith, but also the Liberals in this country, who are um, convinced that they can have another referendum at the end. That when the deal happens in 2019, it will be so bad, they expect, that people will be saying, give us another referendum so we can vote to go back in. Yeah. Um, and pretend this whole thing never happened. So I don't know how that's going to play out. But at the moment, there's no support. Well, there's a, there's a bit of support, but most people are against that. But that might become more popular. Depends how badly things go. Uh, I wanted to close with asking you about some similarities to our country. Um, mm. I know personally I started getting more interested in Jeremy Corbyn once it became clear that my guy Bernie Sanders was not going to be uh, the nominee. Um, and a lot of us, I certainly felt pretty demoralized. Um, but what advice would you have for people who are in America and, you know, watching this, this Corbin, uh, phenomenon and we want to start something similar over here? What do you, what, what would your insights be? Well, the whole thing was kind of spontaneous and grassroots and bottom up. And that's, I think the same as the Bernie Sanders campaign. The problem, the problem is that once you get to that point of, winning like Corbyn did then you're faced with a whole bunch of problems whereby you know the party machine um, and the representatives are from the old world you know they still believe it's the 1990s and I think the way that it's happened in the United States with Bernie not getting the nomination and now people his supporters going into the machinery of the Democratic Party and trying to win positions it's probably more sustainable in the long term in the sense that um, you know, if there's another challenge, um, if there's another candidacy from the kind of left at the net when Trump gets impeached or whatever, um, <laughs> then um, hopefully there'll be more of a base within the party to, you know, to sustain it. So I think that, but, it, but it's really hard. I know there have been problems. I mean, you'll know better than me, but I know there have been problems with um, trying to kind of win positions in the Democratic Party and so on. Um, which is a just bit, you know, <laughs> yeah, just completely the same as what's happening in the UK. Except the difference in the UK is that we have the leader, right. we just don't have the party, and so he's kind of in this bizarre situation where the leader and the and the membership are in in the same boat, but between them, there's this kind of whole layer of officials who who refuse to accept what's happening. And um, well, if but, it you makes know, you feel better, we don't really have the party either. Yeah, we got so nothing. So you can just enjoy that. <laughs> but you've got time, right? You've got time. Kind of, yeah, know. if we're alive. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we'll see. Hopefully it's not. we're not going to be – last thing we want in 2021 is a little uh, Nigel Farage, uh, Donald Trump banquet happening 
at the White House. Um, so we're going to stick with you and hope that it doesn't come to that. Uh, but thank you again, Alex Nunns, for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And people can buy the book if they want the book at yes. allbooks.com, orbooks.com. Right, and you're on Twitter as well, I believe. Yeah, Alex Nunns. At Alex Nunns. All right, thank you so much. Thanks again. Thank you very much. It is a rainy day here in Punk Alley, much like most of the days in the UK, from what I gather. <laughs> We've been talking a little doom and gloom, but there's some hope within the gloom, within the rain. The old um, expression, hope within the gloom. Yeah. Then we got to bring that one back because uh, within this awful, terrible, fascist uh, uprising we've seen across the Atlantic on both sides... There is a seed, a little germ of potential for something greater. And, uh, you know, Julian G. joining us, Julian Guarino. Thank you for having me. Do you go by G or Guarino when you're on podcasts? Uh, <laughs> my name's Julian Guarino. You go by, you go by Julian. Okay. We got to know before we call <laughs> your Guarino's uncle fine. on air. <laughs> yeah, Julian Guarino's fine. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, wait, the last question I th- is was, uh, I think, interesting. It, and it brings up a good point, which is that... Um, we're almost better off with Bernie losing in some ways. I mean, the world would, would be better. would have been too much of a clusterfuck. Is that it, what he would have yeah, been, been sabotaged. He right. would have continued to be sabotaged. I always think it's better to lose. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, you know, the always, ever optimist. Because um, uh, then you have somewhere to go. After. So, All right. So basically, based on that, we need to we need to build up the minor portions of the movement. Yes. Before having a Before we're out. ready for the. Yeah. Um, I definitely think the world would be better if Bernie was president. No of doubt course. about it. Uh, I think, though, an important distinction between him and Corbyn is Corbyn had pretty big support from voters, from the Labor I Party did, voters. I did want to put this out during the interview. They sound just like from a distance explaining the story of an old ignored man in politics for 30 or 40 years. Just like the exact same dude. Like they have right. a crotchety cloning factory. In all Western civilizations, That's what, are yeah. When this. I'm when I'm talking about Corbin to people, as I often am, and it, <laughs> you're uh, always doing it, yeah. Especially at open mics and comedy yeah. shows, I just go into my British politics chunk, poetry, the slams. history of the, the Labor Party. Everyone's got to have a niche, you know. Yeah, niche. <laughs> I think the Rose thing is pretty funny, but I, I've struggled to make a bit out of that. Uh, the fa- their symbol is a rose for like a, a minor. You know, the same with the DSA for like a you know a, a working class like union party uh-huh. like Rubby. It's a rose. I don't I don't know where that, that wasn't landing for. Uh, I didn't. Oh, I haven't done it yet. We'll see. Springs- oh, you haven't we'll done see. it yet. I, well, in a you know, in a different world, in a different political, less toxic climate, maybe that joke. Yeah, would, you gotta I'm wait till someone to see that uh, grow and build. <laughs> like yes, a rose. like a rose. But like I was gonna say is that, uh, you gotta wait for someone from the DSA to shoot a president or something, and then they'll all know about the rose, and then it's hot takes oh, time. Oh, and then you get yeah, then everyone hot take them takes everyone's time. time. Yeah. Have right. you seen these thorns? Why are they so sharp? Well, every rose has its thorn. That's true, and that's what we're seeing now in the UK. Um, but what I was gonna say is a very important distinction um, is that Corbyn had pretty big majority of the vote both times um when he's running for labor leader sanders say what you will about the dnc and the media and all this stuff those are certainly played a huge role but he at the end of the day did not have a majority of 
Democratic Party voted. Not do, anywhere do near. Do you think it would have helped if there was like eight Democrats in the running and they were all around equally as contentious instead of Hillary Clinton, who's like supposed to just like more from him. buy yeah. it? That would have taken more from him, I think. Yeah, the fact that, that it was wide open, like there was nobody who nobody serious who they thought was going to take on kind of O'Malley, but you know, and which isn't he? He's not even that bad, but he's like directly in the middle. I feel like he's he's like the soft left. Yeah. I mean, that's I the, liked him because he's sneaky. O'Malley, yeah, I just like the wire, you know. So I have yeah, to, yeah, and the yeah. wire, <laughs> and he's so strong. He, I think, is gonna. Uh, I he's he's a real he hard doing body. community theater somewhere now. <laughs> Because like if you, I remember watching anybody those with debates, a body like that, and, oh my, uh, uh, he just wasn't ready. But honestly, he's an alright guy. I don't O'Malley, him. yeah, I, I, I think he's seen. a dirtbag. Yeah, we but still hang how, out every other week. That's how I feel about all politicians that's who facts. are not Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn and Elizabeth Warren. And yeah, cool. uh, you know, <laughs> the uh, list goes on. Right, but anyway, for a very short distance. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, that is. Interesting, though, to think of all the obstacles you face when you get in power. Uh, but at, it, for the U.K., it sounds like they kind of needed that at the time. They actually needed him to maybe he it, they'd be better off, arguably, if he had no one and just gotten a lot of traction. But I think it is better for the socialist left to have somebody in that position. I think it's better. Even better than not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to head out. Any moment now, but um, why is that? Wh- oh, I have to go host the open mic down the street. It's at six. I gotta go. This is a recurring thing for us. But uh, what would be a big, what's a big hot button issue for us to tackle in the span of ninety seconds? Uh, abortion. For it. For it. Uh, I'm for it as long as uh, men get to control women's bodies and choices. Julian. Yeah, I would have to... I'm in the middle of both of you. No, <laughs> no I'm joking. I'm for it. But I think it shouldn't be glorified. Okay, it should be glorified. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean I like, think no, it should you be glorified. To. You have to. That's <laughs> my, it's, they should all be public, and can, people should be congratulated. If you don't, no, I think, should be I on think, Facebook Live. No, I think pro-choice is, is the only way that's right, but I don't like how... I feel like some people would just like act like it's not something that should be thought about. I don't like uh, it when I mean everyone's an end of you know what I'm saying I don't know right. yeah I don't like it when they have the abortion but then no one eats the fetus after <laughs> because there's so much courage going unpassed not just on the woman too you know the man too like it's a big yeah. deal it is but absolutely. you should be able to men do it men in a way are the yeah and the, you know a lot of the you don't have to do it is pro-choice is not like I just you know kind of facetiously right. said I'm for it you could be you never want to do it yourself right. and still be pro-choice exactly yeah. yeah my mom very pro-choice she chose to have me to have you okay men in a way are the biggest <laughs> victims of abortion is because the, we could right, have, we the, I'm out now guys <laughs> <laughs> you guys <laughs> I got I, I did right. what I said this has been real this has been some real <laughs> uh, wait Julian do you have anything to plug uh, we'll have you back sometime Julian's a very funny comic in New York um, my Instagram Jules the God okay Jules the you, God you still got a baby? podcast yeah oh yeah my podcast uh, 20 minutes of fire with Eric Aspera alright cool we'll have to have you back for a longer time sometime thanks so much for coming on uh, come to our show next Wednesday April 12th in Bushwick oh, yeah. this is the last episode before that Hell yeah! So it's gonna be Star Bar. The flyer, by the way, is S T A R, but it, the, the real bar is spelled S T A double R R R. Bar is still with one R, and it's off the Jefferson L stop in Bushwick, and it's starting at eight p.m. We're gonna have a great lineup: Lorelai Ramirez, Jordan Jensen, and we're gonna be there. We're gonna be there. Jake Flores, Jabuki Young White, 
uh, we're, Joe Para as well is going to be blah, blah, just blah. fresh off Conan. And people are going to be laughing. People are going to be throwing bucks in buckets. Maybe drinking. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's going to be some drinking. It's going to be Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you there, folks. Bye. Thanks for tuning to Left Jest.